hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Thanks for downloading. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, as always. And um, I hope that your day today, as you're listening to this, has been has been a good one. This week I brought back a guest that was on in the very first year of the show. And in that episode, we talked about a reframing of empire and Americanism and exceptionalism. And we did that through a lens of something I was unfamiliar with called the Doctrine of Discovery. So I had Mark back and we talked about another text that he just has kind of ripped open in a new seam on the upholstery that is my couched views of scripture. And so I was really challenged by this one and I think you may be as well, but I, I was challenged in a good way. And both when we did the episode as well as when I edited it, and it was, it was enlightening. So let's do the thing. Just to be clear, Mark, you're the first person I've spoken to since I took like a summer break. Maybe the second person I've spoke to. So I may okay. be rusty, but That's the nice fine. thing about this is I'm not a professional. So it's it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Um, here we go. Mark Charles, welcome back to the show. Thanks for spending your early morning with us. I normally know, I, I know you usually go out and you do something different each morning uh, because I watch those often on Facebook or or all the places. But welcome back to the show, my friend. Yeah, thank you, Seth. It's great to be here. I, I do normally I go out and watch the sunrise over the Potomac River, right, about uh, 10 miles from my house. Hmm. But because we had an early interview scheduled this morning, I didn't have time to, I'd have to run there and run right back. So I decided to just stay home and yeah. sleep in a little bit more this morning. Yeah. But it's great to be back with you. Yeah, well, I'm glad I could help you get more sleep. That's important. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad for you and for your family that I could, <laughs> that I could do that for you. But do thank you for... Um, for breaking your routine a bit to be with me. I know my schedule's not as amenable as it used to be, so I appreciate you being being flexible. It's been, I miscounted the years. You remembered better than me. It's been a long time since I spoke with you and since you've been on the show, though I've shared your stuff quite a bit and I've sent multiple copies of that book that sits right behind you to many, many people. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's a level in Patreon where I just send them a book each month. And um, yours was it not long after it released. Um, oh, great. Yeah, yeah. I, I switch it up each month and something that's been speaking to me. So that went out. But you've been doing a lot of things since the last time that you were here. There's probably a lot of people that are unfamiliar with whom you are to begin with. And so I thought maybe if you wanted to, just in brief, because again, I'll link in the show notes to our first conversation on the Doctrine of Discovery and some of that yeah. stuff. Um, and so people should do that. Um, but just in brief for people that aren't going to kind of, who are you, what are the things that they should know? Yeah. So just let me start by just introducing myself traditionally. So So in our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans and we're matrilineal as a people. So our identities come from our mother's mother. Now, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and so I say, loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toi which is the waters that flow together. 
My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbeke Dene. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from what's now known as Washington, D.C., but these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. So the Piscataway, they're the nation that were living here, hunting here, farming here, fishing here, raising their families here, burying their dead here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they're still here. I've had the honor of meeting some of the Piscataway. I've been welcomed to these lands by the Piscataway. And so I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. I want to um, also just humbly acknowledge how humbling it is to be living on these lands today. Mm. As you said earlier, I am the co-author of a book, it's Unsettling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. And my co-author is Sung Chan Ra, who's written a, a number of other books. Um, most widely known are The Next Evangelicalism or Prophetic Lament. And uh, we wrote this book. It came out on in November of 2019. And it's been, it, it really is a, a, not only just a, it started out as a call to lament. And it turned into, actually after the 2016 election, into a flat-out rebuke of the mm -hmm. evangelical church. And so the, the, the book has actually been, it's been selling fairly well. It's been generating a lot of good dialogues. There's a lot of both study groups as well as even seminary classes and college classes that are using it. Um, so we're, we're very pleased with the dialogue it's starting. I love, of course, to see the dialogue go national and to yeah. see it really. Um, uh, but there's the, the, the four chapters that I think are the most compelling for people. Actually, the whole book is, but there's two chapters on how we got from Jesus to the doctrine of discovery. There's two chapters completely deconstructing the mythological legacy of Abraham Lincoln. And there's a chapter and a half kind of reframing the whole dialogue on trauma and um, giving a, an analysis of Robin D'Angelo's understanding of white fragility mm -hmm. and actually looking into what I would term as the trauma of white America and understanding white people as another group of traumatized people. So it's a, it's a good book. It's selling well. I do podcasts on it pretty regularly, almost, almost weekly, if not even more often than that. So yeah. I'm pleased about that. In 2020, I ran as an independent candidate for president of the United States. And that was an experience in and of itself. The goal of that was to address our nation and the church's foundational level racism, sexism, and white supremacy. And we were trying to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. Mm. So yeah. I've been fairly busy these last several years since I spoke to you last trying to continue to lecture on the Doctrine of Discovery, continuing to write and get this information out there. And... Uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today about some stuff I've been working on for the past year now. Yeah, yeah. And I will tell people, so there is an episode from last year from when your book came out that I had worked out with IVP to have both Professor Raw and you on to talk about your most recent book. And then again, because you were running for president, it ended up being a little bit more than what you could do, which is a weird problem to have. So we had Professor Raw on and I can remember asking him specific questions and I can't remember the questions now. And he's like, yeah, that's a Mark question. I can answer it in this way, but that is not. And so most of my questions were Mark questions. And he's like, yeah. let me try to answer these and try to do justice to what I think Mark would say. But I, that's a Mark question. <laughs> so. Yeah. Sing Chan Ra brought, he was a fantastic co-author. And he made the, the intentional choice at the beginning of that process to really center my voice. 
mm-hmm. and allow my voice to be center in that book. And he wanted to provide some of the, the bring some of the academic um, analysis into it, as well as um, just his own story, because he's done a tremendous amount of research on, on race and the church and mm-hmm. things like that. And so, but there are definite things, and I've had to say in several interviews, that really is a situation. That's a, <laughs> you know, so he, he really, he really, there's several parts of, of the book where his voice is really front and center. Yeah. There's probably more parts of the book where my voice is front and center. Yeah. Especially some of the most challenging chapters on Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. As well as on uh, trauma and things like that, where that came out of my own lived experience as well as my own research and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, it was a good book. And and for those listening, you should buy it. I'll link to it yeah. in the show. And, and if I'll, they want, actually, they can buy signed copies on my website at oh, really? wirelesshogan.com. We're selling signed copies of the book. I may so. do that because I gave my current copy that's all marked up to a friend to read with no in, with no due date. And I, yeah. I know they're still wrestling with it because we've spoken about it in the past. And, and I don't want to ask for it back, you know. So. Yeah. Well, I, I might just I, buy another one. I'll, I'll so. give you a link to my website and they can order a signed copy of the book yeah. um, from me. So Yeah. Well, good. So you referenced some of the new things you've been doing and you have someone that helps you kind of manage your calendar, which is something I envy. And they had sent me a few sermons that I spent, I don't know, about an hour and a half, hour and, hour and 20 minutes or so listening to. Um, one time less intentional and then the second time much more intentional because I realized I needed to kind of devote a little more some things you can listen to in passing and get a lot from. And there are other things that, you know, you can you can watch a movie and then you can, quote unquote, watch the movie. Um, and it was on kind of Pentecost, working through the gospel of Mark, clean and unclean. Like there is a lot going on there. And I don't know where you would like to start with that. But I will say, so much like I've had conversations with other people about baptism or conversations about Easter um, from people that come at it from a different perspective and a different lens that does not happen to be white American born in capitalism. You, you know what I mean? It comes with it from a point of view that, that is entirely foreign to me. And this was one of those messages. So yes. where would you begin to kind of lay context for what we should talk about? Yeah. So we could go two ways here. There's first, there's my whole personal story of how God kind of raised this in me and really for the last year, almost for almost 13 months now, I have been deeply wrestling with some of these questions. It started with the passage of the Seraphonician woman, um, but it led into a much deeper analysis of really the entire gospel story and wrestling with the question of where not only do I, as a Navajo man or a Navajo and Dutch man, but where do white Americans get written into the gospel story? And as I wrestled with it, I... And I started, so I was wrestling with it for almost nine months. And then I began teaching on it earlier this year. And as I've taught on it, preached on it, presented it several times, I've gotten better at kind of bringing people into the dialogue without completely freaking them out, um, but wrestling with it. And I thought of you, um, and I thought of your podcast when I was even going through some of this because of the name of your podcast with, can I say this at church? Mm. And there is some, some uh, when you read the story of the Seraphonician woman, there are definite things about that passage that you can and you cannot say in church. <laughs> because in that passage, Jesus very clearly creates a hierarchy. And he says to this woman who wants her daughter to be healed, and he says, why would I give to the dogs what was meant to the Jews? 
And she responds and says, well, even the dogs eat the scraps on the table. And Jesus is like, well, great. Here's your bone, you know, and he heals her. But there's some very troubling language. And now I've been in the church long enough and I've wrestled with that passage long enough where I can preach that sermon and still make Jesus look good. But if you really wrestle with it, and if, if, if all of us are honest, if we have that interaction with Jesus, knowing his reputation for loving people, knowing his reputation for, for going above and beyond to include people, we would all walk away from that interaction saying, that is absolutely not what I expected, hmm. right? I would, I would not expect that. And so, but the way I want to approach it today is really by through an understanding of Acts 2, so for many Christians, Acts 2, I would say, is one of the best examples of what church should look like, right? You have this diverse group of people from all over the world. The Holy Spirit has affirmed their identity by actually allowing the disciples to speak the Gospels into their language. And so they are hearing the works of God being proclaimed in their own tongues, they are coming together in unity. They're sharing their possessions. They're listening to the teachings. The disciples are, are performing miracles and signs and wonders. And this fantastically unified community is growing daily. And God is adding to their numbers. And, and I think for many churches, they look at that and we look at that as Acts 2 is like this great model of what church could possibly look like. And so when I was preaching this two weeks ago or three weeks ago to a, a, a Native American congregation, a camp meeting, a summer camp meeting mm -hmm. at the Mescalero Apache Reservation in New Mexico. And I, my first sermon was titled, um, The Hopes and Challenges of the Acts 2 Community. So the hope is, yes, the Holy Spirit is affirming the, the identity of the people. Their church is growing. They're unified. The disciples are doing miracles. They're being taught and growing in numbers. Those are the hopes of that passage. We all know that. The challenge is, is they're all Jewish. Everyone in the Acts 2 community is already a Jew. Yes, they're from diverse places. They're from different ethnic backgrounds, but they've all already converted to Judaism. Hmm. So they all speak the same language. They all, um, they're all, all the men are circumcised. They all attend synagogue. They all keep the laws of cleanliness. They all follow the Old Testament Torah. They all have assimilated to Jewish culture. And now they are hearing the story of Jesus being proclaimed, and they're turning to that. But we have to acknowledge that the biggest challenge of the Acts 2 community is it's a highly assimilated body of believers. It's essentially the American church. Hmm where you have a lot of different colors in the pews, but they're all Jewish are here. They've all assimilated to Western European American culture. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges I think, and, and when I preach around the country, I actually have to tell white evangelical audiences two things that would surprise most people. I have to tell them that they are not God's chosen people. <laughs> and North America is not their promised land. Yeah. I also have to tell them that Jesus wasn't white. He didn't have blonde hair, didn't have blue eyes. He was not European. Because every picture they have of him, right? He is this white European running through the Middle East. And 
the other thing I'm realizing now I have to challenge people on is we have this understanding that Jesus's ministry was inclusive of everybody. And when we think about how do we grow a diverse church, how do we grow a diverse body of believers, everyone will go back to the model of Jesus's ministry because he was the one who loves everybody and included everybody. But if you look at the interactions of Jesus in the gospel, and we'll start with the story of the Seraphonician woman, right? Here is a Gentile woman coming to Jesus who wants her child healed, and Jesus very clearly says, I'll heal you, but you're second in line. Hmm. And you have to understand that place before you get there. There's, two, there's actually only two other interactions that Jesus has with Gentiles in the Gospels. There's the Seraphim woman. Hmm. There is the demoniac who Jesus goes and he finds this demoniac. He heals the demoniac, but afterwards the demoniac is begging Jesus to let him follow him. Be- the, the gospel actually uses the word begging Jesus mm. to let mm. him follow him. And Jesus says, no, you can't follow me. You go back to your own people and just tell them what God did for you. And then there's the story of the centurion, right? Who has this amazing faith who says to Jesus, you don't have to come into my house. That would make you unclean. And you would have to go through this process of cleanliness, blah, blah, blah. I understand authority. Just say the word. And I know my servant will be healed. Now, Jesus is a person who every time he is shown great faith, he absolutely rewards it. And for the Jewish people that he heals, he goes above and beyond, right? He he sits and listens to the bleeding woman's story until it's all over. He touches the leper who came for healing. He goes into the home of the tax collector. He sits and talks with the Samaritan woman. I mean, Jesus, when he sees faith, when he sees a chance to go deeper with people, he every single time takes it. Hmm. And he does not go into the home of the centurion. He doesn't go into her, to his home. Again, he, this is just a break from his other, what he does. So the challenge right there is we have these, we only have three stories of Jesus interacting with Gentiles. And all three of them are at best dismissive and at worst, right out exclusive. Yeah. Well, it feels like he's doing the bare minimum. He is. Huh. And, and we, but we have to remember, right? Jesus did not come to keep the moral code of 2021. Jesus came to keep the Old Testament law perfectly. And the Old Testament law actually required that he be separate from the Gentiles. Required it. Hmm. So, but again, this raises the question, so then where do the Gentiles get included if they're not included in Christ's ministry? Well, then the next logical answer is Acts 2, and I've actually used Acts 2 for most of my adult life. It's here's an inclusive church. But when you look at the fact that Jesus didn't include Gentiles in his teaching, and now you see in Acts 2 that that whole group of believers were already Jews. So now this, again, this things just become easier to understand. So the Acts 2 community is not the inclusive body because it first required assimilation because they all came from, from the Jewish community. Hmm. So then the next place that we see this 
is in Acts 10. Well, before you get there, when you tell that to a, so I assume you've preached this in both uh, Native American churches or indigenous churches, like you just referenced the um, the the New Mexico congregation, yeah. and maybe at a church in D.C. or a church here in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I'm at, or wherever. Like, what is the feedback from that when you basically say you are? I mean, because what I hear is, yeah, there's grace, but we're kind of a second class citizen. Um, yeah. You you know what I mean? Which well, I can. Again, yeah. Again, so what's this- what's the guffaw there? Like, what is the the people just leave? Do they burn the church? Like what, what happens? No, this is why I'm on your podcast, right? Because can I say this at church, which is I'm pointing things out that once you see it, you acknowledge, I've always known that was there, but I haven't known what to do with it. Yeah. So we don't talk about it. I don't. So we don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, who, how many of us have heard sermons even deeply challenging sermons about the Seraphonician woman where Jesus still comes out looking really good. Mm. Instead of saying, it appears that Jesus healed the ethnocentric views of his time. Mm. Right. It appears that he, he was pretty clear of you are second in line and I'm here for the Jews first. And so, again, so what I'm pointing out, I, the, the most pushback I get from people is they immediately begin to f- think about the implications of this. Hmm. And in general, a white audience will have a bit harder time wrestling with this than a native audience from just the, the limited experience I've had. Why, why do you think that's true? Well, again, I don't have any, if we just look at what, so the, the, the native audience has been in boarding schools. Mm. They've been mistreated, abused, some even raped in the name of Jesus. Right? Yeah. And they were told by the people who were doing these atrocities to them that Jesus loves you. He just requires you to, to be this way. Yeah. And... White audiences, again, this looking at this passage creates a tension because the tension is, well, was Jesus sinning? Was he, was he somehow sinning because, you know, of what he did? And it creates a tension of, again, where do I get included? I mean, I can't tell you. For most of my adult life, I've envisioned myself following Jesus. And it was really challenging, difficult to read honestly, the story of the demoniac where this Gentile is begging Jesus to let him follow him. And Jesus says, no. Hmm. Right. Hmm. And so putting myself as a Gentile back in that era, I'm like, yeah, there's a good chance. Jesus wouldn't let me follow him. I have no biblical evidence that Jesus would have allowed me to be one of his disciples had I been a Gentile back in that day. Hmm. Just like I had to wrestle with the fact that had I lived in the Old Testament times, I probably would have been, had genocide committed against me and my people because that's what they were doing to claim their promised lands. Hmm. And so, and so it's interesting. I'm not even going to say this as a conclusion. It's interesting that Western Europeans rather than really wrestling with that tension have just made Jesus white. Yeah. 
So if there's a tension that says, well, Jesus, if there's biblical evidence that Jesus was not inclusive of people who were not conformed to Judaism, then your only two options are to conform to Judaism or or redefine it to redefine who Jesus is. And so Western Christianity made Jesus white. Hmm. I'm not offering that as a conclusion. I'm saying it's an interesting observation. Yeah. Cause then we get to step in, in the place of the Jewish people in this, in this case and, and exert that we're now first in line. And I would even argue, and then it allows you to do Christian ministry by telling other people they're second in line. And so when you have a narrative like you have with the American church towards native peoples or African people, African-Americans, where there clearly is a understanding of you are second in line, right? Pointing these things out kind of begins to shake up that, that whole, you know, pointing out that actually that model Jesus had is pro- is not the model we're supposed to be following. Mm. So let, let, this gets into the next part. Let yeah. me get to the part where we get included. <laughs> okay. So in Acts 10, right, God shows this vision to Peter, and on it is this blanket with all these animals, clean and unclean. And the command is kill and eat. Now, Peter, who's been with Jesus his entire ministry, has walked and and eaten and been with him. He was there in Mark 6 when Jesus declared all foods clean. And Peter definitively says in Acts 10, never, we've never eaten anything unclean. So he's like, Jesus may have said they were clean, but we never touched that stuff. We never went there. And again, there's no biblical evidence that Jesus did eat and break bread with Gentiles. It's, it's not in the Gospels. So while Peter's pondering this, Cornelius' people come. He goes with them to their house. He walks into their house, and it's, it's interesting. The first words out of his mouth is not, oh, I remember when Jesus went into the centurion's house and set a precedent of we're going here. But Peter walks into Cornelius' house, and he says, I shouldn't be here. Hmm. You're a Gentile. I'm a Jew. I should not be here. But he's there, he hears Cornelius' story, he begins preaching, and as he's preaching, he sees the Spirit fall on Cornelius, Cornelius and his family. And the circumcised believers who were with them were astonished that the Spirit of God fell even upon the Gentiles. Again, three years with Jesus had no clue that the work they were doing was meant to radically include Gentiles. Hmm. Peter is even, again, his worldview is exploding right in front of his eyes, but he actually says, there is nothing to prevent me now from baptizing you. You've been given the same spirit of God and I'm going to baptize you. So again, he, he changes. What's fascinating is in Acts 11, the disciples, the apostles hear that Peter was horror of horrors eating with Gentiles and they are angry at him for it. Peter goes back. He says, well, hold on. Let me tell you the story. Mm-hmm. He tells them this story. And then the apostles say, so then even the Gentiles are included again, three years with Jesus. They had no clue. 
See, the challenge I think we have here is Jesus did not have an ethnically inclusive ministry. That was not his ministry model. In fact, he was quite clear, I'm here for the Jews first. And if there's any scraps left over, I'll throw a few bones to the dogs. But he was very clear. He actually said it. I'm here for the Jews first. So what we've done, and so now here we are 2,000 years later, and the best church we have is the Acts 2 community minus the miracles, right? It's a bunch of people yeah. from different ethnic and racial backgrounds who have all chosen to assimilate to a single culture so they can sit in the pews together. Yeah. And, and why have we not gone further? Yeah. Cause well, then I we, think we haven't gone yeah. further because we're using a model that was never intended to be the model. Jesus, I would argue came to confront power and to model true leadership, which is to, go forth with humility to even accept persecution. That was what he was most adamant about when his disciples got a, a perverted sense of leadership and a misuse of power. Jesus was there to absolutely correct them and to say, that's not what we're doing, but he was not modeling this inclusive ministry of diverse ethnics and even racial background. They didn't have race back then, but ethnic backgrounds. Yeah. And so, and so we're using this model of Jesus when technically, and Jesus was pretty clear, right? He's like, I'm going to die and go back to heaven. And it's actually going to be better for you that I won't be here. Yeah. Because then you'll get the Holy Spirit and the yeah. Spirit will remind you of everything I've said. And in fact, he said, you're going to do even greater things than I've done. And we see that happening in Acts 11, where Peter does something Jesus never did. He went into a Gentile's home. He broke bread with Gentiles. He baptized Gentiles who hadn't already converted to Judaism, uncircumcised people. Peter ushered into the kingdom of God. Jesus never did that. Hmm. And so, and so when, we, when we take the model of Jesus and use it for what it wasn't meant to be. So if, if his model was about confronting power and we now make it about ethnic inclusivity, now this justifies us creating hierarchies. Yeah. It justifies us telling people, I can call you a dog and still be loving you. I can tell you you're not qualified to follow me and still be loving you. I cannot break bread with you and not go into your house, but expect you to break bread with me and come into my house after you assimilate to my culture and not, and, and still be loving you. Yeah. When, when that's actually, that's what the Holy spirit came to do. The Holy spirit came once Jesus died on the cross, once he reconciled all things back to creator, once the curtain was written ripped, that didn't just allow the Jews to now go into the Holy of Holies. It allowed the world to go into the Holy of Holies. And we see the Holy Spirit beginning to throw open that invitation in the book of Acts. I will be right back.
this an adequate way to restate that? Because a thought just popped in my mind. So if we're modeling Jesus, we're, we're being modeled a way to subversively live in the culture that we live in to push people to uncomfortable places. And then we should further move in discipleship in a following of the Holy Spirit, which is a, a religion of, yeah, these people too. And yes, those people too. And yeah, those people too. <laughs> And also those people too. Absolutely. Is, is that an overgeneralization? But no, in, in fact, if you look, if you look in the book of Acts, in Acts 2 and in Acts 9, there is language around the body of believers about they were all in unison, they held things in common, they had this beautiful unity. That's in Acts 2 and in Acts 9. Once Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, are brought into the church, that language is not repeated. Hmm. And in fact, the church begins to fall apart, right? Peter and Paul begin to have differences. And this book that begins with this picture of this highly assimilated church, after the Holy Spirit does what the Spirit does, we, the book ends with the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, sitting in a rented apartment, writing letters, trying to frantically hold this fragile group together. And so it leaves us, I would say, with this challenge of we are being, A, we're being asked to do something Jesus never did. And B, we're actually being given a task to do that has never been done before, right? It's 2,000 years later, and we still don't have this radically inclusive church that the Holy Spirit paints a picture of in Acts 10 and 11. I think it's because we're following the broken model. Yeah, well, I think there may be another reason. I think it's because people want to fund things that they were a part of, but it stops where we become a part of. And after it progresses where I'm currently at, I don't want to be involved in this anymore, which makes me kind of question the institutionality of the church, um, just oh, as, a, as, a, as a whole, like just as a big C global, not the congregants of the church, not the body of the church, but the 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 infrastructure of how it actually well, happens because one an institution the goal of an institution is to preserve itself yeah and the church was called to lay down its life mm. yeah to die daily. which is yeah. why i think it's impossible for the church to be an institution so what is, institutions demand preservation how how how, <laughs> how do i say this so how is there a church then in 50 years if we live into that model or, or does the church just radically look like something that I wouldn't recognize if I was alive in 50 years? Which hopefully I will be. Maybe medicine's amazing, but it probably won't be. You know, I, I think what's fascinating even right now is what's happening, what's happened over the past two years with church during the pandemic, where we have these clear divides of, of believers going, you know, really truly demonstrating what it is they trust mm. and who it is that they're following. And I, there's a lot of people who have taken this two years as almost a break from deep engagement with church, right? It's been harder to go when it's virtual. It's been harder to keep kids engaged when everything's online and they're online for school all day. And I think there's a lot of people who have taken a break. And 
from conversations I've had, there's a lot of people who feel healthier after taking that break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They're feeling like it's been nice to not go into this space where I have to defend my humanity at a deeply spiritual level. So part of me is wondering, is, is what's even going to come out of what the church is going to look like after this pandemic? Has some of these, these seeds even been able to be sown a bit deeper during this pandemic? Well, what we typically thought of as church, which is a building with a 75 minute service and a weekly program list. Now that has changed radically. And I, I think there needs to be, and I think the pandemic can even help us even define what we understand the structured part of church to be. And I think there's a lot of people who have found that they've been able to maintain relationships with believers during the pandemic while the the structures of the church have not adapted well and have not been feeding people near as well as was is necessary. So I don't know. I, I think I think I'm hoping we're gonna see a real transformation of the church. Yeah. As we come out of the pandemic. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna stretch this further than you may want to go. And so feel free to punt the question if you want. Um though I can't edit it out of the video. I'm, I don't care to learn how, but I can edit it out of the audio. Um, so thinking of a church structured around and them too, and them too, if I give names to those and thems, and we think about the church that you and I are part of today, um, like how do we intentionally conversate and move the church forward on inclusivity on, or even honestly coming to an agreement on a definition of terms on LGBTQ inclusion and racial inclusion, inclusion and um, power and money and politics and everything that the pandemic has exacerbated, or even science and you know, vaccine not vaccine, climate deniers, climate not deniers. You know, like how do we begin to even talk about that in a way that pastors feel as though they're allowed to, because all of them have homes to pay for and lights to turn on. Like, how do you navigate those two? Because it sounds easy to say, yeah, we just include people. Let's do this thing. But I don't, I don't know if I was a pastor or someone in, uh, you know, leading a church treasurer or something like that. Like, I don't know how I would push that forward. So I think the, the key for this is, is right. This is not just another book topic. This is not just another, another thing to teach on. I think this is this lays a different set of expectations of what we're looking for God to do. Right? In in Acts both two and ten, it was the Holy Spirit that initiated this radical inclusivity, right? Mm. The Holy Spirit in Acts two did not need to allow the disciples to speak the language of the nations. Everyone there already spoke Hebrew. And they were used to hearing the works of God proclaimed in Hebrew. And when they heard it in their language, they were amazed because they were for the very first time hearing the God of Abraham and his works being proclaimed in their own language. They had never experienced that before. And they were, they didn't know what to make of that. Again, in Acts 10, the Holy spirit initiates with Peter and says, eat these animals that even Jesus never touched. Hmm. Go into this home, a place where even Jesus never brought you. 
baptize these people who even Jesus didn't baptize. And I think what, what it's been doing for me is it's been changing my expectations of what I'm looking for the Spirit of God to do. Again, have, I, I think we can only have faith in something that we have an expectation for. Hmm. And if our expectation is that inclusivity looks like Jesus' model of ministry instead of the Holy Spirit's model of ministry, I'm going to have different expectations. Hmm. And so what I want to do is I want to begin to change people's expectations and, and even challenge them of, yeah, I think even Jesus understood the limitations that he had because he was a Jewish Messiah, right? Hmm. And that did not allow him to go certain places and interact in certain ways and do certain things. And we saw that those limits very clearly. I think it demonstrated even what Paul says, which is the law is a curse. It's not going to save you. It's only going to condemn you. You know, Jesus, absolutely. And I would agree, he kept the law perfectly. And even that did not allow him to radically include the Gentiles. Yeah. And so rather than, rather than even teaching this, well, I want to begin to change people's expectations. And I want them to begin to expect the Holy Spirit to blow the doors wide open. Yeah. And even against their own will, right? even against <laughs> what they want or expect. I mean, Peter was there. I'm sure, I'm sure if you would have given them the choice, hey, Peter, do you want to go baptize a Gentile and bring them into the, this body of believers? He would have been like, um, you know, I'll pass on that today. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit is the one who initiated it and is like, no, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pass on that today. <laughs> And so I want, I want, actually what this has done is A, it's been changing my expectations and B, it's been changing how I pray and what I, what I'm even expecting of God. Because one of the things I'm saying to God much more regularly, I love the model of prayer of the leper who came to Jesus. And he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He, right, he lived his whole life as an outcast. He lived his whole life having to yell, unclean, unclean. He lived his whole life being treated as a second-class Jewish citizen. And he came to Jesus. He had heard his miracles, heard what he had done. And he said, I have every confidence that you have the authority, you have the power to heal me. I don't know if you have the character to heal me. Mm. If you're willing, I know you can do this. And Jesus was indignant. He's yeah. like, what do you mean? And he actually reached out and touches the guy. Again, yeah. he's Jewish, so he's, he's being radically inclusive. He touches the guy and says, I am willing, be clean. Yeah. And I found myself praying to God that way. I'm like, God, I have a Bible full of stories of you standing up boldly for the least among the Jewish people. I have church history 2,000 years of you at least allowing Western Europeans to act with impunity. 
I have very little evidence, God, both biblically and historically, of you taking a bold stand for black and brown people who aren't Jewish. Mm. I have very little evidence. There's a few stories here and a few stories there. But I have very little evidence of you taking a bold stand for black and brown people who aren't Jewish, even though I see clearly this is the trajectory going all the way back to Genesis. And what we see in Acts 10, and even the the vision in Revelation, that you have this idea of reconciling all of creation, everyone back to you. Mm. But you have to stand up and do this. Yeah. Are you willing? And so I'm asking God, how long, oh Lord? Mm. Are you willing to? I, I believe you can do it. But I'm waiting for, are you willing to do it? Mm. And so my prayers have radically changed in the past year. And I've also begun to realize that Again, the, the, the myths of the church, right? Evangelicals believe they're the Jewish people. They have a covenant with the God of Abraham and that they're written in the story there. And so they interact with God like Jewish people. For most of my adult life, I believed I was a disciple of Jesus, right? And I've had to wrestle with the fact of had I been alive back then, he probably would have not let me follow him. He might have healed me or given me what I wanted if I would have shown I understood the hierarchy, but he probably wouldn't have let me follow him. And so I've been acknowledging that, yeah, I get written in, you as a white person get written into the story in Acts 10. Mm. And what's fascinating is that after Acts 10 is where the church begins to fall apart. Because it's inclusive. Now that it has uncircumcised Gentiles in it, Mm-hmm. It begins to fall apart. And we, again, as I said earlier, this book ends not with a coming full circle of now we have this radically inclusive of an ethnically diverse body, but we have the apostle to the Gentiles sitting alone in an empty apartment, writing letters to hold this fragile thing together, almost leaving us with the challenge of, are you the reader of these words willing to go out and be used by the spirit to create this radically inclusive Mm. body of believers. Yeah. Yeah. It almost makes me want to make that. I think it's second. I'm probably got the verse wrong. Second Corinthians, like three, 17, 16, that one that says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom almost makes you want to say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is inclusion. Um, Absolutely. I don't know enough Greek to know if I can do that with the text. I'm actually going to text somebody in a minute because that has popped into my head multiple times um, as we've had this conversation. So I have two other questions for you, and then I'll give you back to your missed sunrise. Um, (laughs) So outside of this, um, I've begun playing on the show's name. So what are some of the things in brief that you're like, yeah, if the body of the church, not necessarily the ministers, although yes, of course the ministers, um, if the body of the church does not talk about X, there is no future for the church. Like what are those things that people feel as though they can't talk about in your opinion that must be wrestled with in a public forum in the church and like led from you and me, not as the minister of the church. I think we have to absolutely wrestle with the fact that Jesus's model of ministry 
was beholden to the ethnocentric views of his time. Hmm. And that he did not challenge those views. I think we have to acknowledge that so that we can acknowledge the Holy Spirit is the one who radically brings in this teaching. And the Holy Spirit is one who radically begins to, to do this. You know, the, the longer that we try to, especially the, the story of the Seraphonician woman, the longer that we use that story as a picture of Jesus's loving ministry and inclusive ministry, it's only going to perpetuate the inclusivity that we have in the church today. Mm. So we have to, mo- we have to acknowledge that the model, Jesus wasn't modeling an inclusive ministry, a, an ethnically inclusive ministry for us. He was modeling dynamic dynamics with power. Yeah. He was di- modeling servant leadership. He was modeling being humble and, and submissive to the spirit and the will of God. And so, and, and which means we have to, we have to, we have to wrestle with how attentive are we to the Holy Spirit? How attentive are we to, you know, this is what, to Jesus credit, right? Yes, he never went into a Gentile's home. He never broke bread with Gentile people. He didn't allow Gentiles to follow him. Mm. But to his credit, when his disciples saw that this was what the spirit was doing, they jumped in with both feet. Mm. I think Jesus, one of the things that he modeled beautifully is waking up in the morning, praying to his father in heaven, getting guidance from the spirit and then allowing that to, to shape and mold his day. Mm. And so when, when Peter saw the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles, yes, this radically challenged everything, even what he saw in Christ. But he's like, if this is what the Spirit of God is doing, what's to prevent me from baptizing them? Yeah. So yeah. I think that, that's one of the things where the church has to begin to, to really wrestle with that. And I think we, we also need to wrestle with the fact that, yeah, we, because we have this incomplete view, we're actually trying to build something that we're trying to build an assimilated church, yeah. which is not what the Holy Spirit is about. Yeah, that doesn't need to be built. So last question, this has become my favorite question, Mark, over the last two years, and I don't think I asked this of you the first time. Um, so when you as a person try to wrap words around what God is or what the divine is or whatever that is, like what do you say to that? I feel the most close to God when I am sitting outside 5 36 in the morning watching the sunrise i've i've already listened to the news that morning i know the crises going on around the world the droughts the fires the deaths the wars and i'm watching this piece of art not being shown to me but being constructed in front of me 
I see the shades turning colors of the sun. I see the river flowing. I, I see the seasons changing. I see all these things. And I, my, my response, my, the first response out of my mouth, no matter what news I've heard that morning, no matter what's happened the day before, when I see those things, the first response out of my mouth is one of gratitude for a new day, for another day. And I understand God very clearly as a creator. And I understand that ultimately I don't have near as much control as I would like to think I have, or as the world will tell me that I have. And acknowledging that there while watching the sunrise on a regular basis, it helps put me in my place. And, you know, one of the things I've done, the first chapter of, in the introduction to our book, I have two pages talking about the experience of watching the sunrise. After my campaign for president in 2020, where the conclusion was the nation definitively said to me, we don't want to deal with these issues. Mm. The press didn't want to write about them. The candidates didn't want to engage with them. The nation is like, yeah, we don't want, there's a remnant, a few people, but the nation by and large, yeah, we don't want to talk about these things. And so what I've begun doing since then is I've, I'm continuing. I've gone back to watching the sunrise, but now I'm live streaming the sunrise. And I'm doing that intentionally because part of the reason I'm where I'm at today in my understanding and even what I'm fighting, what I'm working towards came from watching the sunrise. And so I'm live streaming my sunrises in an effort to invite people and even disciple them into a worldview that understands there is a creator and we are not ultimately in control of everything. Hmm. And we, we need to acknowledge that. And so, yeah, so I've, I've been doing this and, you know, I may, who knows, I may run again in 2024. Do it. But right now I'm, I'm trying to lay the groundwork of like, yeah, one, this is not just an educational problem. This is not just, you know, a trauma issue. This is not, but I'm like, there is, there is something fundamental that our, our nation doesn't understand, which makes them unwilling or unable to look at their own his, our own history and, watching the sunrise helped me to get to a point where I could look at those things better. And so I'm literally inviting the nation mm. several mornings a week to join me to watch the sunrise Yeah, and hoping that I will actually see some fruit of that. If I do decide to run again in, in 2024 or the next way that I, I'm going to continue to try to engage this. I don't know the exact next steps, but I know this is part of the groundwork that needs to be laid before we can really engage it at that level again. Yeah. So where do you want people to go to do the things that they should be doing? And I, and I am going to say, I'm going to link, and I'm going to have in the show notes, the link to both of the sermons, um, part one and part two, because I think, and for those listening, there is a lot in those that Mark didn't discuss. There's a lot of stories in there about your family, your upbringing that you didn't discuss. A lot of other things that are weaved in there that that give a lot more meat to what we've gone over 
in, yeah. in brief. And so those are going to be there and you, you really should listen to them and I'll share them as well. But where do you want people to go to kind of engage and to do something like where, where would you direct people to if they hear this and they're like, yeah, I want to, I want to get involved in, in something in this vein. Yeah. I would invite them first of all to, um, you know, I, I'm very active on my own social media. And so I'm trying to do several things. I'm, I'm live streaming the sunrises. I host several times a week, what I call my second cup of coffee where I, I just get online and try to give a paradigm shift for the things going on politically and socially and economically around the world and in the U.S. Um, I'm also trying to start a sermon series or a teaching series on my YouTube channel that I'm calling our decolonizing my faith, where I want to begin teaching about these things more regularly to not work with the institution of the church, but to work with what I'm beginning to call the remnant, <laughs> yeah. right? The people who are like, yeah, I'm not being fed. I'm not being, I'm not having my humanity affirmed in church. I still know God. I still trust God. I still believe in God, but church is, is more of a hindrance to me to that than a help. And so I, I'm, I want to help people to decolonize their faith so that they can meet there. And all that I'm doing on my social media. Yeah. Um, I'm doing, I'm doing a weekly book study chapter by chapter of our book on selling truth. Um, so these are the places where I'm trying to put as many of my many resources out there in real time as I'm engaging with this, as I'm teaching on these things. And I think the thing I'm most encouraged about is especially the stuff I, we're, we've been talking about today. A lot of people are, I don't say agreeing is the right word, but a lot of people are acknowledging that there is absolutely something here. Mm -hmm. And there are things that we as Christians, but even the church needs to begin to wrestle with because it's very clear that whatever model it is we're following, it's not working. Yeah. yeah. It's not working. And it's been 2000 years. And I personally would like to invest myself in something that works. Good, good, good. Mark, thank you so much for your time this morning. Very much so. And for the, again, the breaking of your normal routine. I'm aware of, obvious, especially now, how important that is to you. So I do appreciate your time very, very much this morning. And and um, yeah, man, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you, Seth. I really appreciate it. On, on, online, I'm Wireless Hogan on most social media. Mm-hmm. Um, on Facebook, I have a verified account. Uh, it's Mark Charles Wireless Hogan is my my professional page. Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm all engaging all those places. <laughs> um, and so I encourage people to follow me under Wireless Hogan. And yeah, join this conversation. I'm excited. I think the thing I'm most excited about is I really want to see what the Holy Spirit does. I want to see the Holy Spirit begin to press these issues and challenge and even begin to deconstruct some of what I would say are the institutions of the church that are clinging to this older model that isn't working. Yeah. The music in this week's episode is from the Silver Pages. Huge thank you to them for the continued use of their music. Now the show may be recorded and edited, mixed, by me, but it is most certainly produced by the patrons of the show, and I would love you to join in over there. Patrons get a bunch of things that the rest of the world doesn't. One of the favorite things is the feed of the show that I listen to, which is a feed without any advertisements or interruptions in that manner. 
And if that is you, feel free to join in over there. But there are other things that you'll get as well over at Patreon and that community. And yeah, I hope that you would join in over there if you're getting anything out of this show. If you can't, I get it. Uh, There are other ways to support the show as well. So you can head on over to the website and click on the store button. It has recently been redone and I'm excited about it. And I'm still putting in new things uh, on a semi-regular basis as, as ideas pop into my head. Another easy way to help the show continue to grow is just sharing an episode on social media with your friends. It really does, uh, it really does help. There will be a new episode next week. And until then, I hope that you are blessed and well. We'll talk soon.